Pray with me and we'll open our Bibles. Father in heaven, as Jim said just a few moments ago, we are grateful for this book. We are grateful not only for the book of Revelation, but for the entire Bible. But as we study this book, there is a lot of confusion that goes with it. And it does require your spirit to give us understanding. So I'm praying for that today. Lord, would you let, or would you let your spirit lead us through this? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not at all sure who originally said this. It happens that way with quotes all the time, especially quotes that are used by preachers. One preacher says it, and another preacher quotes it, and then another preacher quotes the preacher that quoted it, and before long you have no idea where it came from. And I think that's what's happened with this quote, but it's still really good. There's great teaching in it. So here it is. Listen to this really closely. If you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll run it. That's pretty good. The truth of it is there are no perfect churches. And if there were, you don't want to be a part of them because you're not perfect. That might be a tough revelation for you, but you're not perfect and neither am I. So if you ever find the perfect church, steer clear of it. They don't need you there. Now, I can believe with all my heart there is no such thing as a perfect church, but I have worshipped in some that really do come very close to it. Places like Libby Christian Church, I love this place. Not because it's perfect, but because of the people that make her up. It's a great church, and in my estimation, it knocks right on the door of being as close to perfect as any church could ever be. Yet I still know that it's flawed. Amen, that's right. I said the same thing last night to the Chain of Lakes Church. I love that church because of the people that make it up. It's a great place, and I love to go and worship there. And there are others in my past that fit in that same category, and I'll share those with you in just a a moment or two. But there is no such thing as a perfect church. In fact, I like the way Dr. John MacArthur says this. He says, churches are not made up of people without weaknesses. Rather, they are fellowships made up of people acutely aware of their weaknesses that are seeking the strength and the grace of God to fill their lives. That's what a church is. It really is. It's just made up of people that are acutely aware of their weaknesses, acutely aware of our need for Jesus Christ, and we're seeking him with all we have. When that happens within a body, you're getting pretty close to perfection. You just have a lot of people that are seeking Jesus Christ. They're looking for the truth that comes through the gospel, and they're looking for the ways that that will fill their lives. Amen? That's a perfect church. I grew up in, in two different churches, both of them in Kansas. There was Westlink Christian Church in Wichita, and there was Crossroads Christian Church in Hutchison, Kansas. They were special places in my life, special places in my life. And when I look back on them, I, I look back with great fondness. I think of people like Betsy Billings, who taught my third and fourth grade Sunday school class. I think of my youth ministers, Rick Ride and Craig Tucker. I think of the preachers of those churches, Gene Carlson and Wayne Pittman. Those two guys, they taught me to fall in love with the Bible. They taught me to love the church. My youth ministers taught me to love the effect that Jesus has on my day-to-day living. Youth sponsors that were willing to invest in us. A guy like Jim Dunning. Jim was a great guy. When I moved my junior year of high school 50 miles away from the, the place that I had grown up, Jim knew that was tough on me. So all I had to do was call Jim and tell him that I just didn't feel like going to school that day. Instead, I'd like to go hunting. And he was such a great youth sponsor, he would take me. How does it get any better than that? Get a youth sponsor that will help you skip school, and we would go. My parents found out about it. They don't care much for Jim. But anyway, it, Jim was a great youth sponsor. 
There were all these great people that were a part of that congregation, and I look back on them with wonderful fondness. It does something inside of me when I think about that. I believe that the church in Philadelphia was a church like that. People that had grown up in her would look back with great fondness at this church that had meant so much to them. Even if they got away from the church and they got caught up in the busyness of life and the business of life to a point where they weren't really thinking about the church and thinking about Christ the way they should, when they would let their mind come to focus on the church in Philadelphia, I think it did something to them. I tried to figure out good ways to illustrate that for you, and I didn't come up with anything on my own. I thought Andy Griffith illustrates this better than anything I can possibly do, so I'll show you what I'm talking about, but let me set this clip up for you. There's a fellow that comes into Mayberry, and he is a businessman, apparently quite a powerful and, and successful businessman, but he's just tied in a knot because his car breaks down when he gets to Mayberry, and has happened so much in the, the Andy Griffith show, he got in contact with Andy, and Andy invited him over to the house, and he stayed with them, and Sunday after church, Aunt B made a big meal, and when she was cleaning it up, Andy and Barney went out onto the porch, and this guy was trying to take care of business, just stirred up at the very depths of who he was, and well, just watch what happens. My name is Malcolm Tucker. Oh? Malcolm Tucker. Of the Buffalo Tuckers? <laughs> no, I'm from Charlotte, Tucker Enterprises. And I have... I knew Charlotte Tucker. She married that man who fell down a lot. <laughs> she married that lens-grinding man from Hutchison, Kansas. <laughs> out. That is beautiful cinematography. Here he is. Mr. Tucker is just all upset about life and everything that's going on. And all he has to do is for a moment, think back to that church that he grew up in. And I, I'm just assuming this, but it looks to me like 
That man hadn't been back to church in a long time, but the thoughts of it could change his heart, could change his countenance. So he thought about that little brown church in the veil, wherever it might have been. It softened him. It softened him. We found that clip on YouTube, actually, and interestingly enough, 389 people have viewed it. 385 people liked it. Four people disliked it, if you know how that works. 385 people looked at that and said, I know what that's about. That's my church. I hope that the people that grow up in Libby Christian Church will look back the same way with that same type of fondness, allowing it to change their countenance, allowing it to change their heart. When they think of people like Matt Warner and Sharon Brossman, people that invested in them when they were young and growing up, and youth sponsors that worked alongside them, Larry and Rita Lampton, Sunday school teachers, Joe and Rose Schnockenberg, Sunday school teachers that invested in them. People like Bryce Huck and, and Jim Ray and John Basham and Linda Remp that have been youth sponsors for a long time, investing in the lives of young people. I hope they look back with great fondness. And if the busyness of life and the, the business of life gets them so upside down that all they have to do is think, man, that was my church. It can change my heart. It can change my countenance. It can change my thinking. Our memories of the church have the ability to do that. By the way, you do not have to be young to grow up in a church. You don't have to be a child to grow up in a church. If you come to know the Lord at 50 years old, then you're growing up in that church, wherever it is. I hope you look back with great fondness. I hope when you think of those churches, it just causes something to happen inside of you. I believe the church in Philadelphia was one of those places. I really do. I think they looked at that church and thought, this has been a great blessing. Of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in Revelation, only two of them did not have charges that he would bring against the church. And only two of them would be letters that he would write that would not contain the words, I hold this against you. Instead, when he looked at this church in Philadelphia, he said to them, you are doing it well. You are doing it well. Interestingly enough, he says to him, I know you don't have much strength left. I know that you've been struggling for a long time. That might have been a small congregation. And it may very well be that only the people that were touched by that church are even aware that it existed, but that doesn't steal anything from that church. We live in a world today that measures church growth. There's the mega churches, churches that run over 2,000, the emerging mega church, churches that run over 1,000. Within the church realm, the church growth realm, those are really the only churches that anybody pays attention to. But folks, if you've attended a church that doesn't fit in that category and you have been touched by it, you know what it means to think of the little brown church in the wildwood, the little church by the veil that warms your heart and has blessed your life. It doesn't matter how big the church is, as long as the church is faithful, as long as the church is doing what God has told them to do. And this church in Philadelphia seems to be one of those churches. And now Jesus says to him, I know you don't have much strength left. I know that you're tired. I know that it's been a, a tough fight, but you overcome. You overcome. And when he says to him, overcome, he, he gives some great promises to him. Because you see, this church, this church in Philadelphia had some psychological scars that they had to deal with. They didn't fight against the social issues like some of the other churches. They didn't fight against the religious issues like some of the other churches. But they had scars that they had to deal with. They'd been handed down to them for at least two generations. You might remember that the book of Revelation was written in the year 98 A.D., 98 A.D., 
in the year 17 AD, something terrible happened in the city of Philadelphia. They went through an earthquake that decimated the city. There were volcanoes all around the area. And the fault line, because of those volcanoes, ran right underneath the city of Philadelphia. So in the year 17 AD, when the ground shook, it destroyed all the buildings in the city. Now, Rome came back in and rebuilt them, and apparently built them better than they had been in the first place. It was a magnificent city. The people were scared. They didn't want to live there anymore. Those that had made it through that earthquake knew that it could happen again, and there were a series of aftershocks that historians record. Those aftershocks, every time they would shake the the walls, the people would want to run, so that's exactly what they did. They ran outside the city. Rather than living in these new, beautiful homes that had been built for them, they made a choice to go live in huts and shacks in a region referred to as the Burnt Lands, B-U-R-N-T, Burnt Lands. They were living outside the city in places most of us wouldn't want to live, even though they had beautiful homes, because they were scared. They were scared that, that the ground might shake again. They were scared that what happened to their grandparents could happen to them, so they didn't even want to go back in. So Jesus says this to him in Revelation chapter 3. This is beautiful terminology, but if you don't know what happened, it doesn't make much sense to you. Verse 12 of chapter 3. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. You see, inside the city walls, they had reinforced everything. They had built pillars to hold up roofs. They had done everything that they could possibly do to make sure that they didn't go through what their grandparents had gone through with pillars. And now Jesus says to them, if you overcome, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And in heaven, you won't have to worry about it. In heaven, you won't have to deal with the fear that you have held on to for so very long. In the book of 1 John, Jesus would say this. Remember, John is the one who recorded the revelation. So when he writes this down, I can't help but think he was thinking about the church in Philadelphia. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 17. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. John says, you don't have to worry about being afraid because Jesus, who is perfect love, drives all that fear away. You don't have to worry one bit about it because Jesus takes care of it. And Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia that when you make it to heaven, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God and you won't ever want to leave. You won't ever want to go back to the burnt land. You won't ever want to get out of here because this place is magnificent. This place is magnificent. And that promise is still available to every one of us. I I don't know about you, but for most people, we deal with fears, different types of them. Everybody sitting around you has one fear or another. It it may not look at all like yours, but it's there. I want you to do something for just a moment. I'm not going to ask you to share this with anybody. This is just between you and God. Would you think about the things that, that cause fear in your life? or worry and anxiety. Just kind of get some of those things in mind. And then listen to the words of John. Perfect love drives all of that away. Perfect love makes all of that disappear. And in heaven, you don't have to deal with it. 
Sometimes we think there are people that don't deal with any types of fears, and that just is not true. The movie The Horse Whisperer has this, this wonderful scene in it where Scarlett Johansson, I believe her name's Grace in the movie, says to Robert Redford's character, is there anything that you're afraid of? Now, you have to understand she kind of holds him up as a, a god or a hero. She doesn't believe that there are any chinks in his armor. So she asks this question, is there anything that you're scared of? And without thinking very long, he says, absolutely. She says, what is it? And he said, growing old and not being of any use to anybody. That was his fear. We all have them. It's just whether we're willing to name them or not. He was. The church in Philadelphia knew what their fears were, and John addressed it. Jesus addressed it. They didn't have to worry anymore. The question then is, how can they trust that that's true? They've been living out in the burnt land for a long time. They've been living outside the city for a long time. How can they trust that it is true? Well, all of that is tied to their understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Go back with me to Revelation chapter 3 and listen to how he introduces himself. In all of the other letters, when Jesus introduces himself, he is taking an introduction from Revelation chapter 1 and picking it apart for each one of the churches and making a specific application of that title. Well, to the church in Philadelphia, he steps outside of that pattern and introduces himself in a different way. Listen to this. About halfway through verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, let's pick that apart. First of all, Jesus says he is holy. That connects him with God. The Bible would teach us that those that have seen Jesus have seen God. If you've seen the Son, you have seen the Father. And Jesus grabs hold of this holiness, this set-apartness, if you will, of who God is. So when he's talking to the church in Philadelphia, he says, I am holy. Now, if you want to see that whole connection, go back with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. The angel singing about God said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And now in Revelation 3, Jesus says, I am holy. Just like that. I am holy. I am set apart. I am different. And he goes on to say that he is a speaker of truth. He is holy and true. Now listen to what the Bible teaches about the truth of God. We're going to start in the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, and listen to this part, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. God does not lie. If you don't believe the apostle Paul in the book of Titus, then listen to this from Hebrews chapter 6 starting in verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. God does not lie. 
There's at least two different places in Scripture, and actually there are many more that points that out to us. What God says He means, and you can trust it. I always say it this way. God says what He means, and He means what He says. So in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia, I am holy, I am set apart, and I speak truth to you so you can trust me. And he goes on with this third way of introducing himself. He says, he is the one who holds the key of David. Isn't that a curious statement? He is the one who holds the key of David. In New Testament teaching, and you see it a couple different times in the book of Revelation, and then you'll also see it in some other places, David is always used, the word David, the concept of David, the name David, is used as a description of the messianic prophecies to talk about the Savior. Anytime you find the term David, particularly the keys of David in the New Testament, they are talking about the messianic line. And the messianic line goes back through Judah to the house of David. So that's all the fulfillment from Old Testament to New Testament, and it's symbolic of the Messiah coming. Anytime you find the term keys, that is also symbolic of authority. So Jesus says, I hold the keys of David in my hands. What I open, no one can shut. And what I shut, no one can open. The people that were listening to that would have more than likely been familiar with this passage from the book of Isaiah. Let me take you there. Isaiah chapter 22, starting in verse 20. In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fashion your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father." All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. There's the exact same terminology again, and Jesus applies it to the church in Philadelphia. He holds the keys to salvation. He holds the keys to people coming to know God. Because you see, in the truth of Jesus, there is also this teaching. John chapter 14, verse 6. Turn there with me if you would. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus holds the keys to heaven, folks, and that's truth. And if you want to experience eternal life with God the Father in heaven, it has to be through him. And if he opens the door for us, nobody can shut it. If he shuts the door, nobody can open it. Now let's stop there real quick. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you're wondering about the truth of John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me, and you want to know how to get to the Father, well, let me give you just five things to think about. And we'll do this real fast. If you've worshipped with us very long, you've heard me do this before. It is imperative for you to know who God is. And God reveals himself in all kinds of different ways. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God reveals himself all around us. Once you know who God is, you have to know who you are. Here, if you don't know, I'll, I'll just help you out. You are a sinner separated from God. Your sin causes this chasm. It is representative of all of the things that you have done that are dishonoring to the Lord. Once you know who God is and once you know who you are, this is where John chapter 14, verse 6 comes in. You have to know who Jesus Christ is. In, in chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. In Acts chapter 2, 
Peter preached those three things to the people at Pentecost. He preached who God was, he preached who they were, and he preached Jesus Christ to them. At the end of that sermon, they all looked at Peter and said, Wow, what must we do to be saved? And this is what he said. You repent. You turn away from your sin. You make a choice to go the other way. And you seal it in baptism. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You put all those things together and you find the truth of John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Those are the keys. Those are the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And if Jesus opens that door and he did on the cross, nobody can shut it. So you can follow that path right into a relationship with the Lord. And the door is already opened because Jesus took care of it for us. If you want to talk more about that after the service, we would be happy to do that very thing. So Jesus introduces himself as holy and true and the one who holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's the one who holds the keys of David and he tells the church in Philadelphia all of this and then says to him, you've been doing it well, keep it up. And if you do, well, you need to see this, verse 10, Revelation chapter 3. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. In the New Testament, and a lot of what we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks, fits under the category of end times teaching. The biblical word for that is eschatology. We are studying eschatology, things that are going to happen in the end. Right now, Jesus gave us a glimpse of some of the things that are to come. In fact, in end times teaching or the study of eschatology, there is a seven-year period referred to as the tribulation. The tribulation is a period of time in history's timeline that God has set aside for a very specific purpose. And now Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, because you have overcome, I will protect you from it. That period of tribulation, it's not going to be good. In fact, it will be full of the judgments of God. It will be full of desolation. It will be full of destruction. And like I say, we're going to study it in the coming weeks so that you'll see everything that's going to be going on. Nobody is going to want to live through it. Nobody is going to want to be here for it. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is saying to the church, and not just the church in Philadelphia, but the church as a whole, if you remain faithful, if you overcome, I'll get you out of here. I will take you out of here so that you do not have to worry about it. That concept has come to be referred to as the rapture. Now, rapture is not a biblical word. You cannot find it in your concordance. You can't look it up on Bible Gateway. It's a concept, not a word. There are some scriptures that actually teach it. Let me give those to you really fast. We're not going to read them because we just don't have time, but I encourage you to look them up on your own. We'll start in the book of, of John. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 54. And 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13, all the way to the end of the chapter. Now, I encourage you to look those up because they will help you understand the rapture, the catching up of the church when Jesus returns to take his church home. And we talked about it a few weeks ago with the first look that we got of it in the book of Revelation. Well, here it is again. Jesus says, I'm going to protect you from this. Now, there are some different philosophies about when that might happen. There's a group of people that believe in what's called the post-tribulation rapture, meaning they believe that the church is going to have to go through the seven-year period and then Jesus will return for his church. That isn't really consistent with what we just read. 
There's a group of people that believe in the mid-trib rapture, which means three and a half years into it, Jesus will return for his church. There's another group of people called the Praetorist who believe that everything happened. All biblical prophecy was fulfilled in the year 70 AD. Jesus returned in 70 AD. There is nothing left to happen. If that's the case, why do we still live expectantly? I don't buy into the Praetorist movement at all, yet it is growing exponentially within the church today, and I don't think it's consistent with the Bible even in a little bit. Because of things like this, in the year 1948, in fact, May 5th, 1948, Israel became a nation again. That is one of the biggest prophecies of the New Testament. It was fulfilled a generation ago. In 1948, some of you remember a world without Israel, and now you're living in a world with Israel, and a number of prophecies have been fulfilled since that time. That's part of the reason I don't believe in the Praetorist movement at all. And then there's a group of people who are called panmillennialists. The panmillennialists believe this, there is no reason to study end times teaching at all because it's all going to pan out in the end anyway. It's kind of funny. There's a lot of people that fit in that category. It's not worth investing in because it's all going to pan out in the end anyway. I'm one of those people who believes in a pre-tribulation rapture because I think that's what the Bible teaches. I really do. I believe Jesus taught it in the Gospels, and I believe the Scripture that I just gave you teaches it. And if we study it through the whole New Testament, we'll see it. I grew up in the 1970s in the church, and I have to tell you, in the 1970s, they used prophetic teaching as a means of just scaring the tar out of people. They really did. There were movies that were made that were terrifying. And if, if you're a little kid going to church on Sunday night and you had to watch those movies, you found yourself thinking, holy smokes, is that really a loving God? And Gene Carlson, great guy, wonderful preacher at Westlink Christian Church. Like I said, he taught me to love the Word of God, but he also put the fear of God in me by preaching end-time stuff, so much so that when he would preach the rapture, I can remember being a little kid thinking, I don't want the rapture to come yet. I have a lot of things that I want to do still, and so I don't want Jesus to come. When I was 13, Gene was preaching the rapture, and I was thinking to myself, well, I hope he doesn't come till I turn 16 because I want to get my driver's license. I want to drive. So don't come yet, Jesus. Then I got my driver's license, and I thought, I want to go to college, so I don't want Jesus to come back until I go to college. And, and so then I, I went to college, and I got to thinking, well, I want to get married, so don't come back yet. Lord, and I was in Bible college, of all things, at this time, and I'm praying against the rapture. I want to get married, and, and I get married, and I think, this is wonderful. So I want to live in marriage for a long time. Don't come back yet, Lord. And then, then after four or five years, we started talking about having children. And I thought, I want to have children before Jesus comes back. And so I didn't want Jesus to return yet. And then we had children, and all I can do since is say, come, Lord Jesus, come. <laughs> I want him to return. And, and, and that's the way it works for me, because I don't like what we're going to hand our kids. So I want to get out of here, and I want to take them with us. But if you were to talk to my kids, this is what you'd hear. Nick is 18 years old, going to college in a few weeks. He wants to go to college. So though he might not verbalize it, he's thinking to himself, don't come yet, Lord, I, I want to go to college. Eli's 15 years old, just finished driver's ed, V16 this fall. He wants to drive, so he's thinking, don't come back yet, Lord. I want to get my driver's license. I want to drive. And Katie doesn't care. She just wants to be where her daddy is. So that's, that's all that matters to her. It's okay to feel that way. It really is, but there's a point as we grow up in our faith where we find ourselves saying, come, Lord Jesus, come, particularly when you understand what waits. And Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, I'll get you out of here. I'm going to come back for you, and you don't have to worry about this horrible seven-year period. You don't have to worry about it. Part of the reason that Jesus is going to come back for the church before that happens, in my estimation, 
is those seven years belong very specifically to the Jewish people. It is a second chance, not for all of mankind, but for the Jews. God's going to turn his attention back to the Israelites. I believe that because of passages like this in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 30, verse 7. How awful that day will be, None, speaking of those seven years. None will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. Those seven years belong to the Jews. If you want just a glimpse of what that might look like, then let's go to Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 25. Daniel writes these words. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the, terrible, the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Makes perfect sense now, doesn't it? Or not. We'll be exploring that as we go into the tribulation. But understand this. It is all about the nation of Israel, the Jews, having a chance to return to the Lord. And you don't want to live through it. So Jesus gives this great promise. I'll come get you. I'll take you out of here, and you won't have to endure it. Listen to what he says will happen after that. We're back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. Three different names. Now, I told you a few weeks ago that when we get to heaven, Jesus has a name that's waiting specifically for us, our new name. But now here's this promise when he says, I will write on you my new name. I will write on you the name of my God and I will write on you the name of the city of my God. Those things will be there. It's that first one that's kind of intriguing to me. Maybe it is to you. He will write on us his new name. You You want to know what the new name of Jesus is? Are you curious about that? So am I. We have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. It fits in the category of the deep things of God, but when we get to heaven, we'll find out what it is. It's the new name of Jesus, and he will write it on every one of his children. Looking forward to that time. I hope you are too. I learned about something this past week I'd never heard of. Maybe some of you have, and and in fact, I know from first service, some of you have. It's called reverse 911. How many of you are aware of that? A few of you are. If you're a firefighter, you're probably very aware of it, or a police officer, very aware of it. Reverse 911 works like this. It is tied to the phone system the same way 911 is tied to it. If you have an emergency in your home, you call 911. They can see exactly where you're at. They dispatch the appropriate help. Well, reverse 911 is used to get contact from places of authority into people's homes. And they can, through computers, generate a specific list of numbers that they're going to call in the event of emergency. It has been used to fight wildland fires and get people out of their homes before the fires got there. It's been used to fight floods and tsunamis. Back after it was just first established, I believe this was in 2002, it was used in Granby, Colorado, when the the bulldozer rampage was happening. Anybody know what that was? 
The bulldozer rampaging Granby, I don't want to know how you know that, James. The bulldozer rampage in Granby, Colorado was this. A guy outfitted his bulldozer to look like a tank, and then he just started tearing up the city because he was mad at the government. They couldn't get him stopped, so they started calling through reverse 911, telling people to get out of their homes, and they evacuated 1,500 people that way before the bulldozer came through and destroyed where they were living or took their lives. It was used as a means of evacuation. Well, right now we're seeing kind of the reverse 911 in the Bible. Jesus is saying, I'm going to come back and get you, and I'm going to evacuate you before a terrible time of trouble. And everybody else is going to be tested, but I will be the key to coming and getting you, and I will take you out of here. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The sooner it happens in my mind, the better. But I understand I've reached a place in life, apparently sooner than my wife, where I can say, come, Lord Jesus, come. I'm ready to go. I hope you're there too. If you're not, Maybe you need to talk to somebody about a relationship with Jesus Christ. He holds the keys of David, the keys of heaven, and he can open it for you. We're going to offer an invitation right now. If you'd like to talk to somebody about that type of a relationship or a relationship with the church, or maybe you just want to pray with somebody, you can do that just by going over to this door to my right, your left. Deanie will be there. He'll meet you, and he'll make sure your needs get met. If you just want to pray about things going on in your life or somebody else's life, This would be a good time to do that. Come in and meet with somebody else and meet in the presence of the Lord and let God take care of your needs. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, like we said, there's a lot in this passage. I wish we had enough time to touch on all of it. And that's been true of every one of these seven letters. One of the things that I'm most thankful for, though, is the fact that they were not written to just churches of the past. They're written to us today as well. Would you help us apply the lessons that are recorded here and help us live them? Father, most of all, I'm asking that as a church, you help us to live expectantly, looking forward to that time that you come back for us. In Jesus' name, amen.